Welcome to another episode of the Bighorn Podcast, brought to you with the support of Leeds and Son Fine Jewelers, a member of our community for over 70 years, and AT&T, who says it can wait, please don't drive distracted. My name is Marty Lockman, and today we will be talking to Frank Jules, president of AT&T Business. Welcome, Frank. And as we always do, we start your story where it all started for you, and that's New York City. Frank? Thanks, Marty. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm honored. Uh, I never thought I'd be doing a podcast, but uh, welcome to the new world. As you said, I was born in New York. That actually scares some people one time when I tell them that, but um, both my parents uh, worked for the Federal Bureau of Investigation. That also scares people, too. But my mom was in the, she was in the clerical person, and my dad was an agent. He chased bad guys for almost his whole entire life. And um, I grew up, and for my first five years of my life, I lived in a place called Stuyvesant Town. It was lower Manhattan. I, I always joked that I didn't see grass till I was six years old. I didn't know anybody. We never went north of 14th Street, for those that know Manhattan. And I never even heard of Central Park. But eventually we moved to Long Island after we had, uh, I'm the oldest of five, I think we had three kids in the city, and then my dad moved out to Long Island, a little town called Baldwin. And I remember uh, that was, uh, we had eventually seven folks in a house with one bathroom, and every time I took a shower, somebody yelled, get out. There was never enough hot water, and uh, but we had a, we had a wonderful life there, and I thought it was a big house till I actually saw it years and years later, and that's where I started. What was it like being raised in New York? I think a lot of people ask that question. It was uh, it was interesting. You become very aware of the of your surroundings. Um, my dad, as a federal agent, always told me if you have to watch what's going on around you, and even more so uh, in in New York. But uh, when we got to Long Island, it was a little bit safer, and then. He taught me early on uh, the, the value of having a job. And I remember a story. We were coming out of church, and I was about seven years old, and we went to a five-and-dime, and I asked him for a candy bar. And he said to me, he got down on his knees, and he looked at me, and he said, you want a candy bar? He goes, how much is it? I said, I think it's a nickel. And he goes, do you have a nickel? I go, I don't. He goes, well, you need a job. And that's when I figured out you need to make money very early in life. And I started, uh, went home that day, and I said, okay, what does a seven-year-old actually do? And I had no idea, but then I figured out you could scavenge bottles. And I next-door neighbor had a old uh, Red Flyer wagon. I got that wagon. I got it fixed up a little bit. The wheels were wobbly, but I went and I scavenged bottles. And, I, and, I, and every time I tell a story, the walk was longer to the recycling plant. But I got uh, seven cents worth of bottles. I had a nickel. I went and bought the Hershey bar. I had two cents left. I was, I was on my way. And then from then on, I raked leaves, shoveled snow, was a paperboy assistant, was a paperboy. Then I became a caddy when I was about 13 at a place on Long Island. Uh, I started shagging balls. They didn't really have a range, but I had a, I had a, a bag. And then people try to hit you. And you try to catch the, the ball in the bag. And then eventually I became a security guard at the airport. I uh, made more money playing gin. I'm not good enough to play at RD in that gang now, so I stay, <laughs> out, of, stay out of there. Um, and that's, that's sort of how I grew up. 
So, I mean, those values were set in you right at the very start by your dad. Um, what, what was, with your siblings and things like that, how was that interaction? What kind of um, fun did you have? What kind of things did you do when you weren't working all the time to get a candy bar? We, uh, it was a lot of team sports, uh, 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 baseball. I'm not that big. I played football only one, only one season. Then I figured this is, I'm not, I'm not long for this, but you know, all of us have adversity in our life. And I had it early on. I was a very talented baseball player. Um, I have, I was an excellent hitter and I had good eye hand coordination and my, I got on the New York State All-Star team. We actually traveled. We had to have a fundraiser for our team, which my parents had, had limited means. And we ended up, um, we were uh, very close to getting to the Little League World Series, which would be every kid's dream in Williamsport. And we were one game away. And I'll never forget this. And it was a seminal moment, one of my first ones in my life. I was... Uh, I was batting third. Um, I was, uh, there was a runner on second, a runner on third. And I was, I hit like 500, okay? And then we were in some small town, I think it was Lexington, Kentucky or something. And um, I took a call third strike. Never swung the bat, game over. Coach comes running down, looks at me, kind of pokes me in the chest and says, uh, you're never going to be a major leaguer. Disappointed your team. And um, get in the back of the bus, and we have a long bus ride home. I'm like, whoa. Collected myself, uh, got home, decided then I was like 13 years old that I was going to go from team sports to an individual sport. That would never happen to me again. And I picked up tennis. And then when I got to high school, my parents could only afford to send one of us. I got very lucky. I went to an all-boys high school in Long Island called Chaminade. And uh, all my other siblings went to uh, the local public school in Baldwin. And Chaminade really shaped me because I, you had to take four years of everything, math, science. It really didn't give you a choice, language. And you had to do something after school. You couldn't go home at three. And so I chose tennis. And uh, back to that moment, I ended up choosing tennis. I got a tennis scholarship to Iona College. And I got a free education. So that strikeout gave me a free education. Probably never would have done it in baseball. So it's funny how things happen. And I talked to my kids and my work colleagues and others about adversity. So that was my, my first big one. And when I trained as a kid, I thought I was going to become a professional tennis player. And I trained with John McEnroe and Vetus Gerolitis, the same courts, the same time, the same balls, the same instructor. And my dad put my arm around me around 17 and said, um, I don't think you're going to be able to fulfill this dream because you can't beat the kids at your own club. Little did I know they'd become one and three in the world. But um, I, he said, you, get, you better get good grades because um, you're not going to be able to do it. But I did play Division One tennis. And when I got out, I played professionally very slightly. But I was actually, I taught tennis all through college and, and then taught tennis full time for my first year out of school. And... Um, saved enough money to actually buy a house because all the people I taught could afford lessons. And they're like, real estate, get into real estate. And I saved my money and I bought a house before I got married. And when I got married, I had a house. So we always talk about the twists and turns that takes people into their 
where they are today. But you've got a coach that tells you you can't play baseball and you get out of team sports and play tennis and are really accomplished. And your dad says, this is not the place for you. And you just keep moving on. What was your thought process at that time? Because for a kid, these are traumatic events, I would think. Um, I never thought failure was an option. And I thought, well, now that my athletic career is sort of over, um, I will now go into figure out business and let me. And and then um, I was thinking about getting married to the love of my life, Barbara. She I hired her at the tennis club. I started as a towel boy, became an assistant pro, then became the head pro. Then I was thinking about buying into the club and the owners wanted me to do that to keep me there. As I got out of school. And how old were you then? I was 21 or two. Okay. And then um, my wife-to-be looked at me and said, I'm not marrying a tennis pro, so you need to get a real job. I'm like, I think I'm doing really well. We have a house. She goes, don't matter. I'm thinking long term. You've got you've to get out of this business. So my first job was New York Telephone. And... Um, but for eight years, I taught Tuesday nights and Thursday nights, 9 to 11. I taught all day Saturday, eight hours. And I taught Sunday, 9 to 11 a.m. for eight years. I tried to tell the story to my kids, and they don't really want to believe it, but worked incredibly hard all that time to actually provide for them because I started having children, et cetera. So it was, uh, I remember my first day at New York Telephone. Uh, we got training for eight months, one of the big, great things of a, of a big company. So I started in telecom. I got very lucky because I picked a field that was uh, in a profession in an industry that was only going north. And I remember my first job was to sell um, telephone systems. And I got really trained on it. And I showed up at the office the first day after training. And I felt like the movie uh, Oliver. All the folks around the office for the Fagans of the world. They were going to teach me what was going on. They were by the water cooler. They tried to get me into their spider web. And um, I remember they said, don't even talk to your manager. He doesn't like to talk to anybody. And it reminded me of Mad Men. I had all these like steel desks in a row. And then finally, after two days, I had this, my territory on my, uh, on my desk. And I went, it's hard to knock on a cube, by the way. The guy was in a cube. I went to said, hello, I'm Frank Jules. I'm assigned to you. I've done some analysis, and I'm going to go uh, start going seeing some customers because I think we have a solution, what I learned in school, and I'm going to go try to sell some stuff. He looked at me, and he had his feet up on his desk. And he was smoking a cigarette. Back in the day, you could do that. And he said, you are a troublemaker. Go back. We're a service industry. You sit at that desk. When you have to go anywhere, I'll tell you. You're dismissed. I'm like, whoa, probably joined the wrong company. So I spent a couple of years there, and then I moved on to IBM. But uh, so again, a little bit of adversity, kind of, kind of get your way through that. But at every step, that work ethic that your dad taught you for the candy bar continues to exist. Uh, you're right. I, I got two other great stories about my dad. So as a federal agent, he was um, intense. Would be a word I would use, and. Um, since he was the oldest of five, he also loved the beach. And our idea of a perfect uh, summer weekend would be going down to uh, Point Lookout or Jones Beach. Point Lookout had more expensive tolls. So if he was having a good week, we'd go that way. Otherwise, we'd go to Jones Beach. And we get on the beach. And there was two things my dad always had with him. 
Um, one was his credentials identifying him as a federal agent, and two, a loaded 38. Most people think loaded as a baked potato. No, a loaded 38. And he had it in a Pan Am bag. So he, when we took the kids into the water, I was the oldest. He drew a circle around me at the water's edge and said, um, I'm taking your brothers and sisters in. You keep an eye on this bag. You do not watch me. And if anybody comes into that circle, you yell, and I'll be there shortly. So I learned responsibility at a very, very young age. And back in the day, they didn't have cell phones. So they had a thing called standby, and that when something went haywire, they would call all the agents in because a big thing was going down. And this was in New York City. And um, he, he would have a list. Uh, 7 to 8, I'm with the Ryans. 8 to 9.30, I'm at McQuaid's Pub. And then 9.30 to 10.30, I'm at the Currents. If the office calls, you must find me. And I can remember the phone would ring. I would answer it. Not the babysitter. He says, no, Frank answers the phone. I would answer it. And they say, it's the office. And I go, have your dad call us. I would hang up. I'd start looking at the paper, look at the time zone, call. I remember many times calling a restaurant, saying I need to speak to my dad. And they don't, they don't want to do this, okay? And this is landlines. And I said, he's 5'7", blue blazer, shiny shoes, khaki pants, handkerchief in his breast pocket, must not getting off the phone until he comes to the phone. And then my dad would get on the phone, and i go, the office called, and the only thing I ever heard was click. <laughs> and then, boom, he'd be home and then get in a car, put a light on the car, and boom, he was, he was, he was, he was off, off to the races. Again, I'll ask, how old were you when that was going I on? was then like 10, 11, 12. And you were the oldest. I was the so oldest. because you're the oldest, you had the responsibility. I did. As you look back on that, I mean, that's a lot of responsibility to give a 10, 11-year-old kid. First, you're guarding a gun at the beach, and now right. you're trying to find dad for the FBI. Did it go through your mind at that time that that was... I, did, I just want to let him down. So I think that was probably the biggest thing. I never want to let him down. And I remember when they, every day when he went to work, he would go with a, um, a suit on. But when they were really going to arrest a bad guy... He would leave around midnight, and he had either khakis, grays, or green beret, and he had a 357 Magnum, and he was like my size. Uh, for those who don't know me, I'm like 5'7 with shoes, and he would list to the right because he called it his service revolver, and just I, I, he's going to war, and that was very impressionable to me as a kid. Were you worried about him, something bad happening yes. to him? Always worried, but my mom was a very nurturing individual, and she calmed us down. But I, I, as I was a very precocious kid, and I kind of at night, even when he came home, he would unload his gun, and I would hear the bullets go in his dresser drawer, and then he would lock the gun, and I would count the bullets to see if anything happened that day. But um, I forgot he probably would have reloaded. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but this was a message to you in some fa in some fashion. Yes. Yes, and so, um, but he would go undercover, and so he'd disappear for months at a time, and he did a lot of, he did all the ings, hijacking, truck hijacking was his big thing, skyjackings, and kidnappings, and he was involved in a lot of high-profile, really famous cases, so, of, of, of people. Crazy. Yeah. But it also, and this happens in a lot of these conversations, your dad was 
busy doing all this, and you were kind of his right-hand man, if you will. But then somebody had to run that house, and that's your mom. That was my mom, yeah. She was amazing. And there was a huge age difference between my mom and my dad. My mom had me when she was 21, so I grew up with my mom. And um, she's, still, she's still alive today, uh, hopefully coming out to the desert over uh, Valentine's Day. So 84 years old, has all of her marbles, and is in good shape, drives a car, lives by herself, does everything. So, And she still lives on the East Coast. Yes, she does. Yeah. Just outside of New York City. Yeah. Everybody's there but me. Okay. So I'm, uh, I have a brother who still lives in Baldwin, Long Island. He never left. I left at 17. 17, I went to college early. I was very young. And that summer, I never came back. I got a job. Um, uh, actually teaching tennis at a, at, a, at a country club before I went to the, uh, the better club. And um, he's never left. And I've, uh, I've lived in probably 12 cities. I've traveled the world and with my, my role and my jobs. And um, so we lived totally different lives. And by the way, he's a podiatric surgeon, very successful, loves everything in Boulder and Long Island. And I, in my career, I figured out when you work for a big company, you have to be mobile. So I raised my hand and said, I'll go anywhere and do anything, and I'll develop new skill sets. I'll do hard jobs. I'll go to different cities. And I didn't put any um, governors on my ability to uh, uh, launch my career. Where are your other siblings other than your brother? Uh, they're all in New York. Yeah, either Long Island or Westchester County. So you were the one that I was went one. out and saw the world. Correct. Totally different than everybody else. Okay, so now you've gone to college. You get out of college. You're 22. You have a house. Uh, your wife says this tennis thing isn't going to work. Um, now tell me about the sure, career my, journey. Yeah, a little bit of my career. So I um, started at New York Telephone. was there about three and a half years. And then I had an uncle that was one of my mentors, my uh, mom's sister's husband, uh, Uncle Jack. And he worked for IBM. And I, uh, I idolized him. And so um, I said, is there any other chance I could work for IBM? And, and sure enough, he got me an interview, and I ended up uh, going to work for IBM. I had a great 10 years at IBM. Um, big companies really train you. And when I was there, it's probably predominantly sales or marketing job, but I, I started in New York, and then I went to California, moved to San Francisco. Then I moved back to New York. Then I moved to Chicago. And then they said, I needed some global experience. They said Singapore. And my wife said, I love you, but not that much. So I'm not, not going to Singapore. Then IBM, if you say um, you're no longer mobile, they put you on the bench. And they say, okay, you're tired. You're going to rest. And I'm like, oh, I hated the bench. But that's when I started to work for, um, then I decided, uh, she said, can find a job somewhere locally. You know, we were in Chicago at the time, a great city. Uh, all my kids, uh, I have four, they all grew up in the Midwest. Um, and then I went to work for a regional bell operating company called Ameritech. And that company is AT&T today. So quick history of that. Um, Southwest Bell was the run to the litter when they broke up the bell system. And Southwest Bell bought Southern New England, uh, bought Pac Bell, uh, bought Ameritech. Then they bought uh, eight... AT&T Wireless, and they bought AT&T and changed their name to AT&T. 
buy a company and take on that name. And then they bought Singular, Bell South, Leap, DirecTV, some properties in Mexico, and most recently uh, Time Warner, now known as Warner Media. So now we're a Fortune 970 ish billion dollars. So, so I've been along for a long ride on that whole thing. And so I spent 10 years at IBM. Then I started with Ameritech and I've been at AT&T for 24 years. And my current role, as you said, when you kicked it off as president of AT&T business. It, and unless you're mobile, as you've already touched on, these opportunities don't come around. Very hard to um, stay in one city because I, I had jobs where I had sales jobs, I had marketing jobs, I had product jobs, I had operations jobs, I had strategy jobs, and the only, only pure job I never really had was a pure financial job. Um, but I ran union labor, um, and I ran trucks and technicians and a little bit of everything. So that was being groomed uh, to become a true general manager, and it, it worked out, but... Everywhere I went, um, I learned incredible stuff. I, I ran our Yellow Page business, a business in cyclical decline for three years out of St. Louis. So I spent time in St. Louis. But I, 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 it's been a kind of a good run. I was also a public company CEO. I left for um, a little bit of time during the uh, um, kind of the dot-com bust and uh, boom and bust. And then uh, ran two public companies for about four years. So... Now you've gone through and you're president of business for AT&T. Tell me what that entails. So it's a uh, small little $35 billion business within the company. Um, we service all the large multinational co uh, corporations. We do business with every one of the Fortune 1000. And my team says grace over roughly 10,000 large accounts. So... Anybody that's got more than a couple of the locations and anybody that's got uh, locations inside the U.S. and outside the U.S. And we sell them every product and service we have. So all wireless products, all wired products, all stuff around cybersecurity, data centers, hosting, things called wide area networks, local area networks, Wi-Fi networks. Um, and pretty much if we didn't exist, uh, the world would come to a screeching halt because we transmit every voice, data and video bit around the world. And our customers rely on us to open their banks every day. Federal Reserve relies on us to, to send money all around. All the electrical utility companies, all the airplanes. You know, my, I wake up every day, actually. I don't want to be on the front page of the Wall Street Journal that we did something that didn't let planes fly. So um, it's, we are part of critical infrastructure for every major company. We have thousands of people in the organization. We, um, we take very seriously about the service we provide we understand its criticality of what we do on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, most of our, our large, complex accounts have t uh, uh, on-site technical personnel, architects that help them um, go through what's called transformations from products, uh, uh, old products to new products, and we help them lead the way and try to keep them out of harm's way and help them grow and serve their customers in a better way. That's what we do. Um, of course... With all those responsibilities, you still found time, as I understand it, with what you call one of the most expensive business calls you've ever had with 
with Mr. Hubbard about increasing, having us have better service here at Bighorn. That was the most expensive drink I ever had in my life. Yeah. It was at the vault. I got invited to the vault. I'm like, oh, this is exciting. And an RD said, hey, um, we're going to build this brand new clubhouse and uh, we, need, we, need, uh, we need some new self-service here. So I kind of laughed and I said, okay, well, I, I didn't know what's going on here, but let me go figure it out. And uh, I sent some technicians out and they go, you're right, it's, it's got bad coverage. And so I said, what can we do about it? And we, at the time we had bad coverage areas that eventually we will fix, okay? Just a matter of time and money. By the way, uh, we're the largest spender of CapEx of any uh, company in America. We spent 22 billion this year. That's for publicly reported data. Um, so I called the team and I said, um, uh, what's it going to take to fix Bighorn? And they kind of told me. And I said, uh, where is it on the list? Well, it's probably down around 14,000. It's way low. I said, okay, we'll make it one. They said, well, there's four hospitals in front of it. I said, okay, make it five. So anyway, it's all, it took a while, but we've got, uh, we've got uh, good coverage now and on top of the new clubhouse, also on top of the vault and on top of the on top of the Canyon Steakhouse, and so it should be, uh, everybody should be well served. Uh, well, I speak for everybody in saying thank you for that. My pleasure. Um, your business life, um, with everything that you've accomplished personally in business, what does the future look like from a business standpoint for you? Some of the back nine right now, as I'd say. So my goal is to leave uh, at t in a better shape uh, uh, every single day and to work on that, grooming uh, my successors and um, trying to uh, figure out how I do that uh, transition orderly and pick the right people um, and, and shape the future of AT&T and make sure we can execute on our strategy. So the world is changing dramatically with uh, the advent of 5G, artificial intelligence, virtual reality, driverless cars. It's kind of amazing what's going to happen. I think at some point um, your grandkids will say, what is a license? And you drove a car. Why did you do that? Most of the cities, um, based on a bunch of catalysts such as overpopulation, um, congestion and traffic will, the major cities will become smart cities. Um, you'll be able to walk outside a hotel, raise your hand, a car will stop, it'll be driverless, you'll get in that car, it'll say, take me to, uh, take me to Spark Steakhouse for a steak, and it'll drop you off. Somebody did a study I read, I don't know if it's right or not, but New York City needs 9,000 cars for 9 million people, never any traffic. Old people will have freedom. There'll be less DUIs, less texting and driving deaths. And it will, that's a very serious problem in America is texting and driving, which we're an advocate of. Uh, put your phone in the glove compartment. No, every, it can wait. And the world will change. Now, if you're in um, Decatur, Illinois, that's maybe a long time away. But if you're in Manhattan or L.A. and San Francisco, um, I believe we'll see it in our lifetime. So I think we'll start with long-haul trucking. They'll put the trucks on, on almost like trains at night, driverless, and they'll be off the roads, you know, during the day. And it's probably going to start in China, by the way, because of their smog and overcrowding and traffic, and the government won't send it. So pretty, and these pretty are interesting. All, 
these are global issues Correct. now. It's not just you know right. hydrocarbons, States. you name it. So and that's yeah. why you do a fair amount of traveling. Yeah, you get to see things. I tell you, I, I was um, I was in Korea recently and um, seen some some of our large uh, complex customers. People ask me like, what do you do every week? So uh, every week. Um, if I go outside the U.S., I leave on Saturday or Sunday. And if I'm in the U.S., uh, typically in Dallas, where I'm, where AT&T is headquartered, I'm there on Monday. Monday is all internal meetings around strategy, pricing, product, um, capital investments, et cetera. And then, um, then I want to get out. I see large, complex customers. I meet with our teams in the local, in the in the in the city they're in. Uh, I do what's called no one grows. I meet with people that are. Uh, high potential and younger in the organization and uh, get spend some time with them and, 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 and get to know them better because they're in my organization, but and I may mentoring. not know. And you do mentor. I do a lot. We do a lot of mentoring. AT&T is one of the most um, incredible companies for uh, diversity and our ability to spot talent, find talent, get them new jobs, get them the skills they need. And you got to be out. You can't do that in Dallas. And so I travel the world, and what's happening in Singapore will be different than what's happening in L.A. But I, when I was in Korea, I was struck by the work ethic, unbelievable work ethic. And um, they have a thing on Wednesday nights and Friday nights with a, a company called Samsung, large Korean company. They actually have Samsung police that will come and push the kids out of the office because they want to work too much. Their parents tell them, get there, stay there, don't, uh, don't come home. And they wanted to have a normal life. They're worried about that. Um, interesting today, our millennials don't see it quite that way. Now, they probably have course-corrected one way, and maybe we've course-corrected, and probably the answer is somewhere in the middle, but an incredible work effort. High engineering degrees, uh, we hire a lot of engineers. So it's just amazing. But you get out, you see this stuff. But you were taught this great work ethic. Does it concern you that here in the States we can fall behind? We don't want to get to where the Koreans are, where you have right. to kick people out of the office, as you said. But does it concern you at all what you see here in the States? I, I think um, uh, the, the, the millennials and the Gen Zs, they're, 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 uh, they're getting it, okay, but they do have much a, a better, uh, uh, more of a work-life balance. But they 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 are starting to get it as we the baby boomers age out, and they're the kind of the next set of leadership of what it takes to run large, complex organizations and or big companies in general. A lot of my kids uh, ask me, like, Dad, when they went into the workforce, I gave them a little bit of advice. I said, and it may be old school, but um, get in a little bit earlier. Stay a little bit later. Um, be a pleasure to manage. Have a good attitude. Understand your boss's quirks. And every boss has quirks. If he wants something on his desk at 9 a.m. on Monday morning on the left side of his desk, his or her, him or her, do it. Get it there maybe even a little bit earlier. So my son told me a story. Uh, he went to Amherst, a very bright kid. He turned down an offer with uh, uh, Goldman Sachs. I cried. Nobody turns down an offer from Goldman Sachs. He went to work for Deutsche Bank because they were going to start him in London, and he wanted to be outside the U.S. for his first job. Graduated in May, goes to London, and then he gets back, transferred back to New York. He's in New York, and um, he, it's a Friday night, 6.15 or so, 
and he gets an SOS from a boss on an email. He sent it out to a bunch of folks in the department saying, the boss is on the way back to Greenwich, Connecticut, had some large uh, client coming to town, needed some financial analysis done, and my son sent a note. I'm in the office. I can help. D puts it all together, gives it to a messenger, gets message up to Greenwich, Connecticut. He says, by the way, this was like his boss's boss. He didn't even really know the guy. He said, I live in the city. If it's not right, I'll come in Saturday and I can fix it. Um, comes in Saturday, fixes it. Boss has a great meeting on, uh, on Monday. Two weeks later, he's promoted. And I, t I said, the story is you hung around the rim. You got a layup. You got a layup. But you got to be present to win. If you scoot out at 501, if you're off with your buddies, you head to the local saloon, you don't see that email, you don't get a chance to shine. So um, you got to be on. And he was on. And he said, Dad, you were right. So, But you were right when you started work, just like what you told him. I mean, this, that part of business has never changed, has it? No, no. And um, this whole pleasure to manage. And uh, I have a cute story. Uh, you know, we're a sponsor of uh, the Masters, along with Pebble Beach and the Byron Nelson. And uh, so we're, we're golf-centric as a company. And at AT&T... If um, you get an email, you kind of expect an answer within a couple of hours, but not instantaneously. If you get a text, that's urgent. That's like SOS. And um, I was at Augusta, um, but playing a place called Sage Valley, which is like 20 minutes away. And a lot of clients we bring want to play in the morning and then want to go in the afternoon. It's a long day to watch golf for like eight or nine hours. So you play in the morning. And you come back, and, you, and they don't tee off the, the leaders tee off at 2 o'clock. So you don't miss anything. You get another four hours of golf. So it's like a perfect day. So this place, Stage Valley, um, it's a wonderful spot. Just out, it's about 20 minutes from Augusta. And um, they have their, their uh, nuts about cell phones. So no cell phones, like in the car, in the bag, hidden. So I get off, I get off, and I get a little antsy by that because I know our culture. And so it's a Thursday. I get off. I pull my phone out when I get in the van to go back to Augusta, and I see I have a, I have a, a text, f which I got about an hour ago from Randall Stevenson, our CEO, saying, you know, call me. I'm like, uh-oh. I, I feel terrible. I'm like late on this. Call me. I call him. He says, question for you. Do you have any, do you have any Dallas National tees? Tees, <laughs> like tees that go on the ground. I go, are you joking me? He goes, no. Jordan Spieth is playing. He's we, we have our logo on his bag. He's superstitious. He doesn't know it, but his caddy put it on SOS. He's running out of tees. He doesn't have enough tees, and he's superstitious about these tees. And I said, yes, I do. He goes, okay, we'll get him to speed. And he hangs up. Boom. So I call on my team. I said, I need a baggie. Don't ask why. Just get me a baggie. I pull into Augusta. I have all my tees out of my bag. Throw them in, I throw them in the bag, the baggie, and I figure out where Jordan is, and he's on the eighth hole, but between nine green and ten is a long walk at Augusta National. So I go up to the security guard who's guarding the exit and tell him, my interest, I'm Frank Jules, president of 18T. I have tees for Jordan Spieth. His caddy's name is Michael Greller. Give him the tees. When he walks by, he'll take them. Just say, I got tees. He looked at me like I was a terrorist. Then I repeat again, Frank Jules, President 18, it's important. These T's must get to Jordan Spieth. Sure enough, I get, I step away. I'm looking at the, the rental police 
And Grella goes by and he puts the bag up and Grella sees their teeth and grabs them and puts them in his pocket. I then go, uh, we actually, uh, AT&T, we have a permanent house off of 10. You can't see it on TV for hospitality. It's, it's an incredible spot to take customers. I go back there. Randall Stevenson is a member and he's got a green jacket on because you have to wear your green jacket when you're on premise. And I go in and I go to him. I go, T's delivered to Spieth. He turns to me and goes, I can count on you for everything. Here I am, president, T-boy, AT&T. <laughs> but I tell that story every now and then. Why? You want to be the go-to person in your company. And you have to do things that are outside of your realm of expertise. I always wanted projects that I had nothing in responsibility for. I'd go learn something. And I would, when, I do, when I was a young kid at Ameritech, uh, the CEO called me. He saw my light on. I was way on the other end of the floor. And he said, we have a board meeting today. It's snowing out. Uh, make sure that the path is clean because we got a lot, of, a lot of old board members and they may fall on the ice. And I said, how wide do you want the path? How many shovels? He goes, like two or three. I go, I got it. I'm on it. Called the real estate folks, make sure it got shoveled, took a picture, showed him. It's all set. He goes, thank you. He knows I had nothing to do with getting the snow cleared out, but he knew he could get to me and I would get it done. So that's how I've lived most of my life. I try to deliver on my commitments. I don't moan or complain. I have a good attitude. Um, I stay away from the water cooler. I don't grouse. And if I have anything that's really negative or I have an issue with, I will close the door and I'll present my argument in a very logical way. And that has served me well for my entire career. How important is it, Frank, to be inquisitive too? Because you need to always be learning, right? Correct. Um, that's a good question. I remember early on, um, my first big job at IBM, I was what's called a branch manager. And I had like 400 people and I was 29 years old. And I said, okay, I probably know everything there is to ever know. And then um, somebody tapped me on the shoulder and said, you're really talented. You've got a lot of great ideas, but you got to get to listen a little better and to have hear what others have to say. It was great advice, and thank God this person gave it to me because it was actually another moment that changed my management style. And, um, you know, the people I work with all have a high IQ. They all have a great attitude. They're all, they all have critical thinking skills, and they're all problem solvers by nature. Nobody comes to me and says, this is really bad. What are we going to do about it anymore, okay? But younger in the ranks, they kind of say, what are we going to do about it? You're the boss. You should think about it. So I, I learned over time, um, I've dramatically improved my listening skills. Some of you who know me may not think that, but I, and it's still a work on, by the way, still a work on. When, when somebody comes in and I get to, I'm in so many meetings that um, I don't multitask. I, I listen to the subject at hand. I'm totally focused on the data that's being presented um, I'm not looking at my phone. I'm not at my computer. I'm at a conference table and I'm looking at that person or I'm on a telepresence, high definition, you know, a thing we use a lot um, for remote meetings. And I really listen intently. And if somebody has it 90% right, in the old days I would give them the 10% advice. I don't even do that anymore. I'm like, 90% right. I believe in you. This is your plan. Great. Come back to me in a month. Update me on how we're doing. I don't make it. I don't make it better. Sometimes it's amazing. Listen, 
it's 125% better than I ever thought of. I'm like, oh, wow, that is really good. Thank God I listened. I didn't, otherwise, I may never have got to it. And every now and then, it's a total train wreck. Then I have a responsibility to not let that happen, to rejigger, to coach, and to build my team to do a better job. So, A couple of questions that I have just about what you've brought up so far. With all your world travel and this world we live in today, are you concerned about security? Is AT&T concerned about security as you travel? You're a key person in this whole operation. Uh, very much so. And we take proper precautions is what I would say. Yes. Yeah. And the other from a golf standpoint, talk to me about some story or stories about the AT&T. Oh, the Pebble Beach event? Yeah. So it's a wonderful event. It's in February. Most of uh, America, other than us lucky folks at Bighorn, are freezing. And um, if you get good weather at Pebble Beach, there's nothing um, more spectacular. And um, from the venue, from the accommodations to the mixing with celebrities, um, the, the pro-am party on um, Tuesday night, is one of the most incredible nights ever because a lot of the stars there are country western singers, uh, Kenny G, um, and they get up and it's a very small venue and they do impromptu, they sing, they play music, and it's like being in somebody's living room and it's just amazing. And their ability to walk three phenomenal golf courses and um, and to be with the pros and. I would say um, Jordan Spieth, um, I get to spend a lot of time with him. And on a Wednesday night, he will come to an event at the Monterey Bay Peninsula Hotel. We have the Monterey Bay Peninsula Hotel. We've got rooms at the Lodge. We take uh, every room at Casa Palmero. So we have 26 players that play at Casa Palmero. They're the they're C-suites the uh, of America. A lot of them don't want to be on camera, and they want to be <laughs> kind of in the back. So if you make the cut, you're going to be on camera. So... You know, there's a cut. If you make it, you play on Sunday. But Jordan will show up. He will take selfies. He will sign autographs. He will uh, talk to 200 people and work, work to them individually. Okay? He's there for like three hours. He's playing the next day. His wife, Annie, comes, who is also delightful. And uh, he is just, um, I almost think of him as one of my sons. Okay? I get to spend uh, a fair amount of time with him. At Dallas, he practices and plays at Dallas National. And uh, we do this thing called uh, Funday Monday. And you know how Sunday night you get the willies? Like it's Sunday night, I got to go to work, I got to get on an airplane. I fly most Sundays, okay? But during daylight savings time, there's a group of us that's about um, anywhere from 8 to 13, 14 people. We all get a cart. It's kind of like a whiskey run almost, okay? And we play in three hours, fly around, have a forecast and go, go, go. And we finish, we have a piece of fish, a salad, a glass of wine, and we go home. But it makes Mondays a lot better. So Spieth is always practicing when he's not on the tour. So one time he comes in and he sits down afterwards, say, hey, Frank, I beer with you guys. I go, yeah, sit down. And I had um, two of the guys, you know, don't really know him. And, and I go, you guys know Jordan? They look at me like I'm on, they're on candid camera. And so I explained to him what Funday Monday is. Oh, you know, I wouldn't mind doing that. I said, oh, you can't. So what are you talking about? He said, because you're slow. Your PGA Tour is slow. You cannot play. He goes, 
well, I'm a member of the club. I go, yeah, we're not, we're not going to have you because we play in three hours. You play nine holes in three hours. We play all 18 in three hours. And then I kind of imitated him. I, uh, I said, is it 138, Michael? Is it 138? Is it 138, Michael? And then he does this little thing where he waggles the club. And, uh, oh, he says, you're killing me. So a couple weeks later, I saw his agent. And he said, Frank, Jordan told me the 138 story. He goes, everybody in the world pays him homage other than Frank Jules. He goes, keep it. Keeps him real. Love it. <laughs> He's a good kid. He represents us well. Uh, plays pretty well at Pebble. And um, uh, it's just a spectacular event. We always have a good field. And it's great. It's a great place. I'm, I'm just blessed to be there. And um, every now and then I'm in the booth with Nance. And that's, that's a lot of fun representing the company about what we do. And we raise so much money for the Monterey Bay Peninsula Foundation. And we help a lot of uh, educational foundations, which gives kids a chance. And that's probably the most satisfying thing of the AT&T Pebble Beach. We've talked a lot, Frank, about your professional life. Tell us a little bit about your personal life and how you come to this point and uh, about your kids a little bit. Thanks. Um, I've got uh, four wonderful children, uh, all educated, all have jobs, um, and all getting close to finding their passion, which is a very interesting thing. Um, and then we all went through a tragedy when uh, roughly nine years ago, uh, lost my wife, Barbara Jules, to cancer, to leukemia. It's a very difficult disease. She had AML, a blood disorder, which still to this day, they know very little about. Um, she spent two years here at Bighorn, um, uh, an incredible mother, Played 100 rounds of golf a year, was a 10 handicap, really never sick a day in her life. Um, I used to have to call the, a club to find out where she was. And we had this great thing in our marriage where I traveled so much. Um, she moved the first five trips. And then I, when we dropped anchor in Chicago, I was making enough money that I could actually pay a plane flight, rent an apartment, get a car, and commute so my kids could have more of a normal life. Um, and she was the CEO of the household, but she had a rule that time zone dependent for the most part, 10 o'clock at night, I should call her every single night and debrief on the day. And, um, it was great because, um, I'd be out and I said, I gotta go. I gotta get to my room. I gotta, I gotta call. And my colleagues know there he goes, five to ten. He's motoring to that elevator to get up to that hotel room to call his wife. She said, you should be done with your me meetings, done with your meal, in your bed, by yourself, okay, talking to me. And we did that. Never, ever missed, okay? And so I, every now and then she'd say, I said, well, how was your day? She goes, well, on the first hole, I hit it right. I was under the tree, but I, I, I punch cut it out. I got to the front, made a chip, and one putt it, and it made a great up and down for a four. And I go, are we going to go through all 82 shots? She goes, what else you got to do? <laughs> there was one time I missed this call. And this is a totally true story. It was the vice presidential debates. I was living in St. Louis at the time. Sarah Palin and this Joe Biden. And um, it was live from St. Louis University. I was in the front row. It was on TV. And I said to her, I'm not going to be able to call you because the debate's going to be going on. She goes, call me when you're done. But by the time the debate ended, by the time the security left, by the time we got buses to the cars, I got back. It was like quarter to one in the morning to where I lived. I didn't call her. 
went to bed. 3.30 in the morning, I'm in a double-gated community. There's a knock on the door. I wake up. I don't even know where I am. I have no idea. I didn't know where I am. I'm like, where, where am I today? Knock on the door. Knock, knock, knock. I jump out of bed in my boxers. I go to the door. I look at the people. This is a St. Louis police cop, policeman. I open the door. I go, what? He goes, call your wife. <laughs> I pick up the phone. I think something wrong with my kids. I say, I got 11 missed calls. Oh, I, I always had the phone on mute because I had to be on mute for the debate. Couldn't have the phone on. My phone's always on. I call her. She answers the phone. I go, what's up? She goes, you're an ass. She hangs up. <laughs> <laughs> Want to make sure I was alive. That was about it. Thank God you weren't with Sailor Palin. <laughs> oh, my God. God <laughs> love her. That's but so anyway, my kids, uh, my son, Sean, a banker at Deutsche Bank, my oldest boy, my daughter um, um, is uh, a jewelry designer, actually to the stars. Tyra Banks wears her stuff. She worked for 13 years at a Fortune 500 company in HR. And it was a, as she said, I'll quote her, a drone job. And all of a sudden, um, she started a business. When she was a kid, she used to bead. She started a business on uh, Etsy, friends and family, Etsy, and then eBay, then her own website, incorporated herself, social media, Google AdWords, got Tyra Banks to wear her stuff. And she wore a, a ring my daughter made uh, on her microphone hand. I think it was 2017 for America's Got Talent. And my daughter had made 40 rings. And my son, another son, I'll get to him, the Hollywood agent, he said, if Tyra's wearing your ring, I'm going to get you a credit. She got a credit. And um, it, the next day, she had orders for 4000 4000 So she became famous. Marcus Limonis, the guy on The Prophet, CNBC, kind of a little Shark Tank guy, hears about it, um, wants her to hire her because he's going to open a boutique and wants to put her jewelry in boutiques. So now she's going to get retail distribution. She's currently in Aspen, New York, and Chicago. Now works three days a week, makes jewelry. We're talking about the next stage of, you know, doing a factory and getting going. And uh, she says, Dad, I found my passion. I found my passion. So really, really proud of her. And then my son, uh, Greg Jules, Hollywood agent. He's got a big personality. No idea where he got that from. But he worked for AT&T for four years and got great training and then said that um, since his name was just below me in the directory, every time he got promoted, people think I was giving him the answers to the test, wanted to show he could do it himself. And then um, was on a project, the Four Seasons, um, for AT&T, one of his accounts. And he meets Ellen DeGeneres and Portia de Rossi in the bar at night. And he says, hey, Ellen, I'm a huge fan of yours. And she, and if anybody knows Ellen, she's as, as good as she is on TV. She says, what's your name and where are you from? And, you know, not kind of the demographic that would watch her. And he actually did. And he went through a lot of stuff with her, and he sat down, and they had a drink. And then uh, she goes, you should be in Hollywood. you got, like, you got a sparkle. That night, she picks up the phone, calls the head of her agency, and says, in the next 24 hours, a favor to me, I want you to meet with this kid. So he goes in the next day. He meets, if anybody watched the Entourage, he's equivalent of Ari Gold. Meets with Ari Gold, and Ari says, look, um, Ellen likes you. You're overqualified. We usually hire kids out of college. you got to start in the mailroom. you got to be here in the mail room for at least a year. We don't pay much. And if you want a job in Hollywood, you come back here in two weeks, we'll give you a shot. 
came back and said, I'm subletting my apartment. I'm shipping my car. I'm leaving AT&T. I'm going to LA. I'm going to start my own career in Hollywood. Something I always wanted to do. He was in the mailroom for eight days. An agent picked him up, not, not, and put him on his desk. Now he's a full-fledged agent and doing very, very well. And my youngest son, Francis, whose birthday's next week, he uh, works for Salesforce.com, and um, he's just budding in his career. But I'll give him a plug. He's number one in his product. He just finished his year, and he's the first the top salesperson at Salesforce for his product. So all doing good, all finding their passion. My son, Sean, Private Wealth, Deutsche Bank, the banks had issues. He's last man standing. His business is bigger and better than anything because he's kept and acquired as folks have left. And he's figured out he can actually play golf and make a lot of money being in private wealth. So that's all. I'm very proud of all of them. And I give all the credit to my wife. She created the guardrails. She did all the hard work through all the years. They would all say that. They all had a curfew. Senior year in high school, they still had to be in bed by 9.45, lights out, because she was a big believer. If you didn't get enough sleep, you couldn't pay attention. You couldn't get good grades. Without good grades, you're not going to have options, and you want to have options in life. Frank, thanks for sharing those feelings and those thoughts, and congratulations on what a wonderful family you now have. Thank you so much. Uh, a couple of questions that I have that I ask most everybody that that comes in for one of these podcasts. And, but the, we'll start with what brought you to Bighorn. And when you came to Bighorn, what were your first impressions of Artie Hubbard? So I've got an interesting past with Bighorn. I came here and played golf. My son's 30. My first time at Bighorn, I won a trip to uh, La Quinta Hotel. And um, a buddy of mine knew somebody that knew somebody that knew somebody at Bighorn. And my son was 11. He was a budding golfer. And my wife, I think, was pregnant, so she couldn't come. So I took him. I said, we're going to play golf. We came here, so 20 years ago, roughly. And I'll never forget coming through these gates, going, oh, my God. First time I ever saw... Now, I was not a country club person at the time at all. I saw... Titleist professional 90s in a pyramid. Never seen that before. I actually wanted to take the balls because they were better than the ones I had. But I figured that wouldn't be a good idea. And we, they only had the mountains. Played the mountains. Couldn't believe it. And then we had an event that I had to rush out of there. But I didn't get a shirt. So I came back the next day and I wanted to get a shirt. And they said, uh, it's like a one-day pass. No allowed back in. <laughs> I'm like, okay. So... That was day one. Then day two was probably two years later. Uh, won a trip again. It was also at La Quinta. And the Skins game was going on. And I walked the mountain for the Skins game. Freddie Couples. Oh. And I'm like, who is a member of this place? This place is like the most unbelievable place I've ever seen in my life. And that time, I got, got in the clubhouse a little bit. Oh, it was amazing. The old one, by the way. It was amazing. And then um, I had done a research, 20 years of research. If I ever bought a second home, where would it be? I looked all up and down Florida, rented houses, had the kids. So started in Jacksonville, all the way down to Key West, uh, Miami, Boca Raton, Fort Lauderdale, um, and uh, West Palm Beach, you name it, and played golf and looked. And then we looked all over the Carolinas, and, and then we looked all over Pinehurst, 
And then we went up to Laguna Niguel and Newport Beach. And then um, there's no, we figured this, if we want to play golf on Christmas morning, by the way, I play every Christmas morning for the last 10 years, okay, uh, at Bighorn. And there's only two places, South Florida or here. And um, I decided uh, I hate bugs. I hate humidity. I hate hurricanes. Don't like winds. And none of that's at Bighorn. So, so lo and behold, um, um, I get involved in building Stone Eagle. And um, as you remember, uh, RD took a run to build a team to buy that. And um, I got a call out of the blue from RD Hubbard. Frank Jules, R.D. Hubbard. Um, I'd like you to be on my bidding team for uh, Stone Eagle. We're going to bid. He gives me a number. I say, okay, I'm on your team. I'm in. And uh, for a variety of reasons, it didn't work out. But a week later, he called me back and said, it's me again. I said, um, uh, he goes, I'd like you to join Bighorn. Because when I called you, you didn't equivocate. You said yes. And even though it didn't work out, I would love you to become a member of Bighorn. And I said, it really, other than Steve Zuccarini and Deb, who had my wife and I here one time, I don't really know anybody there, sir. And he said, yeah, know me. That's good enough. <laughs> and he says, what do you think? And I go, I'm in. He goes, welcome to Bighorn. Amazing. And he has been nothing but kind and sweet to me, my family, and my children. He's a wonderful human being. And as you know, we had lunch with him today. That's correct. So it was great. Yep. What a great guy. He's, uh, he, he's awesome. But I still remember that vodka I had uh, at the vault to put in the cell service was a very expensive vodka. Who has had the greatest influence on your life? My dad, my dad and my wife. Okay, my wife was a real reality check to everything. Um, I was a go-getter. She was kind, caring, compassionate. Got me to slow down a little bit, smell the roses a little bit more, uh, reminding me of my responsibilities as a parent. And um, when she passed, I'll never forget the story. My, uh, it's about 90 days later, my son Greg called me. I was in London. He said, um, where are you? I said, I'm in London. What do you need? He goes, Dad, I got to tell you something. I talk to Mom every single day. I did not know this. And you're my parent. And we need to talk to you more. I go, wow. My wife was the center of the wheel. We were all spokes. That day, I went from a spoke to the center. And I said, does everybody else feel this way? They do. So never too old for coaching. I went to the center. So my wife was, helped me a lot through those years. My dad was black and white, not a lot of gray. Uh, good, evil, integrity, honor. Um, I had this thing about um, you could never do anything to embarrass the family because of his role uh, working for the FBI. He was also a graduate of the United States Merchant Marine Academy. He fought in World War II, um, told us really only funny stories other than every now and then he really shouldn't have been here because he was in the South Pacific and with uh, the planes hitting into planes left of him and right of him and blowing up the ships and his plane never got hit and he survived. So, um, 
by rights, he said he almost he shouldn't have made it, and he enlisted and went to the war. So he, I, when I gave his eulogy, I really talked about what a hero he was and an inspiration to me. He actually protected America his whole entire life. That's what he did. So formulated me, gave me a great work ethic, taught me integrity and honesty and dealing fairly with people. Big influence on my life, both those people. What is your management philosophy? So I got to hire great people. Um, I spent a lot of time in the hiring process. I've used the phrase, I inspect what I expect. So um, I try to have uh, very good dialogue on goal setting, the strategy, the success metrics, and how we know we're achieving the results we have set out to go after. Um, I have a call every Monday at 8 a.m. no matter what I do. It's with my whole entire team. Um, I use it to share data and give color on subjects and things that are happening either in the company, in the industry, about anything. And then they all have time to go around and, and, and share with each other and with me. I do a, a, each uh, month, I do an hour with all of them. So I have the 10 people that work directly for me, one hour. I try to do it face-to-face if I can. If not, we use video. And um, we're going through their, their metrics. But I don't micromanage, okay? Um, at this point, um, we focus on uh, more on what they're doing rather than the how of it's going to get done, and I allow them to navigate. But is it going to be off course? Early warning. Don't want to be surprised. I don't want to be called out if the building's already in flames. When it starts to smolder, we have a chance to put a blanket on it and, and keep it. So um, bad news early, and they all know that. And I'm not judgmental about it. So um, come with the bad news. Come early. And, they, and come with solutions. I want you to think through it. So they've all got incredible, incredible high, uh, high IQ, all got great attitudes, and um, they're actually, everybody that works for me, I'm blessed, is an all-star. But my management style also is I will not ask them to do anything that I won't do. So I'll travel almost 300,000 miles a year. I go to exotic places. I meet with tons of people. Uh, each week I'll do a, a town hall in the city where I assemble everybody that's part of the AT&T family and discuss what we're doing and then um, uh, talk about our strategy, what we're executing on, what's happening, what's not happening well, ask for their ideas and suggestions. The first time you do it, they don't even believe you. They're, they're, they're kind of almost scared. But when you go back and say, the last time I was here, you told me three things. One, we fixed. Two, is work in progress. Three's not going to happen because of X, Y, and Z. So... When you do that enough, um, you'll get good ideas. And uh, being out with our customers and being with my team in the field um, makes me um, um, really, really uh, helps educate me and be really smart on what the real problems are, the ones I should spend my brain cells on trying to solve. Do you always have specific expectations and make those expectations clear to people. That seems to me to be an important aspect of what you just covered. Without a doubt. Um, at the end of the year, um, my folks are never surprised by their appraisal. They're never surprised by the bonus or lack thereof. They know exactly where they stood, where they stand. We have basically monthly how are we doing, what's green on the dashboard, what's amber, and what's red. And if your red's 
are outweighing your greens, you know uh, what your performance is. So it's very, very clear. And um, every now and then you got to let people go and for performance. And that's never, never, never easy. But if you've laid out your expectations, you lay out the scorecard and you judge results against that scorecard, which that individual has to have input on because they have to have ownership of it, then it's actually much easier than you would think. Last question. What advice would you give the 20-year-old Frank Jules today? So kind of what I gave my children. Um, find your passion. Establish mentors. We haven't really talked about that. But my whole life, I uh, uh, sought out and found mentors. And it's not necessarily your boss, okay? It's actually better if it isn't your boss. That's an art where I think kids should learn to do that more, especially young in the workforce. Somebody that's um, a, um, more seasoned has um, been in a role for a number of years, and that you can sit down, but you gotta, you gotta own it, you gotta make the appointment. You got to get there. You got to have that cup of coffee or, you know, uh, maybe a beer after work. You got to come prepared with your questions. So I always had met key mentors all along the way. I um, always had clear expectations of my goals and my objectives. And I sought and asked for feedback. How am I doing? Because I want feedback. A lot of people are afraid of feedback. Feedback is a gift. It's a gift. If you get it and you act on it, don't be afraid of it. So embrace feedback. Have a mentor. Understand your goals and objectives. Re get feedback on how you're doing it against each one of those things. Be a pleasure to manage. Have a good attitude. Volunteer for stuff. Volunteer. Take on additional roles and responsibilities. Figure out how to be the go-to person. When your boss has a dirty job, and he or she wants to send it to somebody, I want that job coming to me. I want to show I can do more. Also, tell folks your career expectations. You're not going to get promoted in a year. And jobs are not ladders. There's ladders and lattices. You have to go horizontally to get up. This is not a straight. Nobody goes from zero to 100. You've got to kind of wiggle along the way. Sometimes you may even go down a little bit. Okay? But... The idea of developing a new skill, learning a new activity, building on your base of knowledge, then your base is solid, it's concrete, and then you can grow. So that's what I would tell them. Frank, thanks so much for coming in today and sharing your thoughts. And for those of you that are listening, you've just listened to a graduate course in uh, learning about business, but also a great, and I commend you on this, personal life. Because your personal life and, and the goals and things that you've set up for your family is, is extremely impressive. So again, to you that are listening, share this with other people too, especially young people in your life. Because from my experiences, a lot of things that Frank talked about today are going to be helpful to people in your life too. Frank? Thank you again for coming here tonight. Thanks for having me. You know, by the way, I pinch myself every time I walk into Bighorn. I never take it for granted. It's a privilege to walk into that locker room to play golf here. And I feel blessed. Thank you, Marty. Thank you. 
And today's episode was brought to you by Leeds and Son Fine Jewelers and AT&T, who reminds us it can wait. Please don't drive distracted. Thank you for listening to the Bighorn Podcast, and we look forward to having you back in our next episode.